It's time to play like a jet with your host, Scott Mason. Play like a jet. What does that mean? Smith rifles that one to Mims. And that's a foot race. He's going to win. Touchdown, Baylor. Denzel Mims with another monster score of 70 yards. Five straight games, Anthony, where he's got a touchdown catch of over 20. That's deflected. And picked up Mosey. He'll take it in. It's a pick six and a touchdown. Bell into the middle of that line. And it's a touchdown. Big return for Crowder. 85 yards. There was contact with a quarterback and it's incomplete. They got pressure on Prescott. It was Adams who came blitzing in. He'll hit immediately when he got the handoff. You know and what? it's <laughs> the Q-inator. Oh my gosh. Listen, thank you. From the TOJ Digital Studio, this is Play Like a Jet. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And I want to talk a little bit about the gentleman that the Jets drafted out of the University of Florida, Jabari Zaniga, the defensive end slash outside linebacker, and LaMichael Pirine, the running back. Also, there's a gentleman named Quincy Wilson who played for the Colts, and he also played for the Florida Gators before that. So I figure, while well, I've got... My guest on will talk a little bit about Quincy Wilson's days at Florida as well. And my guest is Scott Carter, senior writer at FloridaGators.com. Scott, thanks so much for coming on, man. Hey, Scott, no problem. It's just strange to see all these Gators landing with the Jets. It's like a UF North right now up there. But, uh, you know, seeing them get Zaniga and uh, P. Ryan both in this year's draft, uh, certainly will keep paying attention uh, closely to the Jets as we go forward. Well, let's put it this way. I think Jets fans are a lot happier to have the players they just drafted and somebody like Marcus May than they were when Tim Tebow was here. But that's a whole other story, and I'm not going to bring that up again because I don't want people to boycott the show. Scott, let's talk a little bit about Jabari Zuniga first, and I have to ask you this question first and foremost. A lot of people talked about Zuniga as a team captain and seemed to vouch for his character, but... On draft night during the Bleacher Report broadcast, Matt Miller said that he had talked to area scouts that had concerns about Zuniga's maturity, that there was a little bit of a worry that he was a little too tight with Ja'Kai Polite. What do you know about this? Should there be any concerns for Jets fans here on that front? You know, I think that might just be trying to fill the air of a draft broadcast. I mean, I've heard nothing like that in terms of uh, Zuniga. Obviously, the big thing with him, especially his senior year down here, was the injury, uh, the high ankle sprain, which, you know, coaches, they hate when a trainer says he's dealing with a high ankle sprain because those things are so tricky. And You know, he got hurt in the uh, third game of the season up at Kentucky, and you wondered, okay, he's going to miss some time. Didn't really see it developing as, as long as it did. But, uh, you know, he only played about 30% of the defensive snaps this year, so they wanted him on the field more, but – and he tried to give it a go at LSU and re-aggravate it, and it cost him some in the stretch. But as far as the, you know, any character concerns, I really have not heard that that kind of news to me. Uh, I know that you know Jakai Polite obviously did not work out, and I, uh, I I knew that with him, you know, you, he was like a kind of a flash in the pan guy. He was either going to be a great pick because of the final year he had at Florida, I think there were questions about could he duplicate that or was that just kind of a, a one-year wonder? And unfortunately for the Jets and for Chikai Polite, as of right now, it looks like maybe that was a, a one-year wonder. And you hate to see a guy, 
you know, get drafted that high and didn't really fail to see what he has. And I can understand where, you know, Jets were when they kind of released him with some of the issues he was having. But I just don't – him and him and Jabari, the nigga from my time around them, they're very different personalities. Uh, they Their career arc's very different. You know, Jabari Zuniga is a guy who got here in 2015, redshirted, and then started playing regularly as a redshirt sophomore. And each year he continued to improve. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't go the way he wanted to with his senior year. But I think that the Jets, you know, have a player who, if he can stay healthy, I think there's still some room for improvement there. And that could turn out to be a very good pick down the road. Uh, but as far as those initial questions about his character that you asked about, I, I, that's just news to me. This is interesting to me, Scott. He grew up in Marietta, Georgia, had committed to NC State, then decommitted, and eventually ended up going to Florida, although he almost went to Arkansas. That's a weird chain of events there. What do you remember from that? Yeah, he was a guy that I remember doing a story on him and talking to his mom about this and so when he, he he didn't start playing football until he was about a junior in high school. He was a basketball player. His dad actually played basketball at Tulane way back in. And his, his dad, I don't think, was heavily involved with him growing up. Uh, but, you know, he, he does have those genes uh, in basketball. But he started to get into football, started to develop some talent. Other people saw it. So Randy Shannon, who eventually became a Gators assistant coach, uh, while Zuniga was here, he was actually at Arkansas at the time, and they had recruited. Uh, they had seen Jabari in high school, I think, as a freshman or sophomore. But he just he was small, didn't impress Shannon. Shannon sees him again like a year later, and he had grown. and And I think they developed that relationship. So that's how Arkansas came into the picture. And then, of course, Shannon ends up at Florida. I think that helped you lure uh, Zuniga to Florida initially. So that, that's a little bit of the backstory there. But, again, he, he's a guy that he hasn't really been a football player for a long time. I see. That's why I say I think there's still some uh, growth there that he'll have. Uh, but he got bigger uh, through the years at Florida, uh, was productive when he was on the field. And, again, it was, it was almost just one of those uh, classic what-if scenarios, how it played out his senior year because the team was better than a lot of people expected in 2019. And yet, uh, in Florida's two biggest games of the year against Georgia and LSU, unfortunately, they didn't uh, have much of Jabari on the field because of the ankle sprain. And, you know, everybody's, you know, that's just one of those lost opportunities for both sides. Seems like a bit of a high upside swing because he was inconsistent with the production, although you did say he produced quite a bit when he was healthy, but he had the injuries. He's somebody that hasn't played a lot. So this is one of those where you look at him, you see the athletic ability, you see the flashes from when he was healthy, you think about the fact that he hasn't played that long, and you're projecting that maybe you can get a lot more out of him down the line. Is that more or less how you would look at this? Yeah, I think that's exactly probably what the Jets were looking at. I mean, you know, because there's, when you look at his college career, I mean, he had some good numbers, as I said, when he was on the field. But his, uh, I think his career high was six sacks, maybe six and a half. So it's not like he had one of those single years that Polite did uh, in 2018. But uh, they always had, you know, defensive teams. For defenses, actually, as weird as it sounds, has been Florida's calling card really for the last several years before Dan Mullen got here 
and kind of altered that landscape. So he, he was on, uh, he was in a lineup with a lot of very talented players on defense who have been drafted the last few years. So I think it just took him maybe a little while to, uh, you know, he had to share reps. Uh, he wasn't getting all the reps that maybe he would have at a, at a team that wasn't uh, as strong defensively. Um, but, you know, you go back and just look at this year. I, I, the plate, I still remember, you know, he, he barely was able to get on the field in the Georgia game this year, but they, you know, he knew that was a huge game for the Gators. He gets out there, and I still remember him bursting through the uh, the offensive line of Georgia and hitting DeAndre Swift in the backfield early in that game. But, again, it was kind of like it played out the same way it did all year for him. His ankle was just too tender for him to stay out in the field too much. So, uh, again, we got glimpses of it. And now he's got a chance with the Jets to go in there and show it long term. And I, that's why I still think that his best football is really ahead if he can stay healthy. He's a kid from Marietta, and he spent his college career in Gainesville. New York's very different. You and I were talking about this before we started recording. Great pizza up here, but the heat is on from the second you get here, and I don't mean Florida humid heat, like 95 degrees in the summertime, which good luck with that, by the way, once it becomes July and August. But we're talking about the spotlight is going to be on him at all times, especially being a third-round pick. It's not like he was a seventh-round pick where nothing is expected of him, especially a guy that can play the edge rusher position. So tell me a little bit about him as a person. You think he can handle being here? That would be interesting because, you know, Jabari's kind of a quiet guy. Uh, you know, he was never, even down here, he was never one of those guys who sought out a lot of attention. Uh, I don't remember him, you know, being a huge presence on social media as a lot of the guys are these days. Uh, he just kind of showed up, went about his business, uh, wasn't a flashy guy when he did talk to the media. Uh, and then, of course, his last year, we didn't really, we weren't around him too much because, of how much time he missed. So that that's a that's a transition that you're right, Scott, that, you know, New York's different than probably any other situation that he could have gone to in terms of attention and media attention. And then he's going to have to, I'm sure, answer a lot of questions, you know, just about, okay, we just had a guy from Florida and Ja'Kai Polite, a guy you know well. How are you going to basically prove that you, you're not going to turn out like he did it goes back to me. I mean, they're both your own, own people. Uh, I think they're I, – I just think that Ja'Kai, I know just from talking to his mom a few times and seeing her on the road at games, I know he's she's heavily involved in his life, so I think he's had a good background uh, in the way he was raised. And you hope that he's had people who's helped him through this draft process who are out there for his best interest. But you just don't ever know how a guy's going to – react until he goes through it but again I, I just see Ja'Kai being a guy that'll be okay because he's he's just always been about showing up doing his work and and going home and I don't expect that to change you know because he's in New York now that seems to be the reputation of LaMichael Pirine as well very much a business-like guy nothing flashy nothing fancy good in the passing game solid runner but it feels like he's a guy that was a very solid college producer, but doesn't stand out in any one particular area, especially athletically. Is that about right? Yeah, I think he's probably – some of his athletic gifts get overlooked. I mean, they get overlooked by me at times here. I, you know, he, he was a guy that came in and he played right away. 
and he just kept getting better, and he knew that he had to develop his game to get to the NFL. So he really worked on his uh, his pass-catching ability, and he had 40 catches this year. Uh, that was one of those areas that, that that's a very valuable, obviously, in NFL, so that helped him get drafted. Uh, but, you know, his speed, for instance, he, the great story down here that you may have heard is, you know, when he was in high school, he um, – he, he really wanted to go to Auburn. And so he goes over there to a camp with his parents, uh, I think after his sophomore, junior year. And Auburn says, hey, you know, we like you, but you're just not fast enough to fit in our plans. So he ends up <laughs> coming down to a camp on his own to Florida. Uh, he caught a Greyhound bus from his uh, home up in Mobile, Alabama, just to see if he could impress the Florida coaches enough to get a spot. Sure enough, he comes down, does what he has to. They offer him a scholarship and, and that part of his history. And then, of course, his signature moment at Florida really came this past season when Auburn came to town in an early season matchup. Both teams, I think, ranked in the top ten, and the game's still in doubt in the fourth quarter, and Piron breaks off an 88-yard run and outran several Auburn players to the end zone. And, the, you know, it was a, a huge vindication moment for him. So I think I think he is a guy that – He's mostly going to be between the tackles uh, or on the edge and rec- as a receiver. He's not a guy that shows great speed, but it, it's there, I think, when he when he has to have it, as we saw. So um, I just think he's, he's one of those players that maybe gets overlooked some, but I, I think he can be a productive player uh, long-term if, if in the right situation. I love the fact that he held that grudge all that time against Auburn and finally made them pay. It makes me think he's going to want to make every team that passed on him in the NFL pay for what they did, right? Yeah, he's one of those guys. He, he, he's Like you said, he's he's a lot like – or he sounds a lot like Jabari in personality-wise. And I think LaMichael's a little bit more outgoing than Jabari is. Uh, but at the same time, he again, he's not a guy that says, look at me all the time. He, he just – he, the coaches loved him down here because of the way he came to practice and he was a natural leader and he knew he had to get better and he worked really hard to get better. And that's what got him this opportunity and got him drafted. So uh, I think in terms of, uh, you know, if I'm the Jets, I'm probably, you know, those things matter. Uh, there may be another back or two who they could have taken who had some, you know, more flashier skills, but, uh, when you look at a guy like that and see what he's done and how he got better in his college career, you think he'll want to do the same in NFL. So and I think that's what they're getting there. You said he got better every single year. What was it like watching that progression? Well, I think the, the, the part of it with receiving, that was the big, big development. But also, you know, past pro, a lot of these college backs, I mean, hardly any of them when they get to this level are ready for, for – to be what they call, you know, a really good pass blockers. So they have to work on that part of the game, and that's something that LaMichael had to work on as well. And now it's even going to be stressed more at the next level when your franchise, you know, is attached so much to the starting quarterback. So uh, that's – I, I just saw those two areas were, to me, the keys. And I, I have to go I, – I know there was one year also where he, he kind of leaned up. Uh, you know, you could sell some changes in his body where – he, he took the diet part of it more seriously. And as you all, so often you see these guys, they get here and the workout routine is so, it's not like anything they ever experienced in high school, even though a lot of them get here thinking, okay, I, I can handle this. 
they really do have to make adjustments. And LaMichael was one of those guys you could tell his body started to change after he was here for a while. So just those areas, what I remember the most. You said Jabari Zuniga, it would be interesting to see how he would fit in in New York. Do you feel the same way about LaMichael Pirine? Like I said, I think they're so similar. I I don't see it being a huge problem for either guy because, and the the way I say that is like, I don't think they get caught up in all that stuff so much. So even though the media spotlight is going to be greater, it's never been a real focus of theirs in the first place. It's not like they're like they seek out that attention. So, and I don't know how much they engage with it. Well, Michael, I think, does a little bit more. I saw a couple of tweets after the draft. Like, there was, wasn't there somebody who tweeted about even a character concern with LaMichael Pirine? And I was like, and everybody down here was like, where in the world did that come from? I think he even responded on Twitter to it. Like, you don't, you just don't have no clue who I am or whatever. So, you know, that's, that might be as much as you get out of him early on. But at the same time, I just, you know, it's, it's going to be a new situation for both of them. But I don't think there's any anything uh, for Jets fans to be worried about in that regard. But uh, they will be uh, under scrutiny as, uh, as you know, all NFL picks are. But I do think that little added element of the whole Ja'Kai Polite situation might might linger there. But one good thing, they also have guys like they know, like Marcus May and Brian Poole and, um, and now Quincy Wilson. So they have some guys who've already been through that. And they know these guys, so I would expect that to help them as well. It's Gator Central here in New York right now, Scott. So get ready <laughs> for right, the invasion. Man. It's like the NWO coming to take over WCW back during the wrestling war. want to ask you about <laughs> one other thing with these two, and that is how their teammates and coaches got along with them. I know they're both captains, so I'm going to assume that both of them had good relationships with their coaches and teammates. Obviously, this plays into what's going on with the Jets because there's been some friction with Adam Gase and a couple of the players, so that's always something you keep your eye on as a Jets fan. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, one of the hardest things for college players, obviously, is going through a coaching change. And, you know, coaching changes is a part of the game, but in college, it's a little different than the pros. In the pros, everybody knows it's a business, and the coach can get changed anytime. You just live with it. But in college, these guys committed to a group of coaches who weren't here or, uh, you know, who were different by the time they finished. And they, they had to adjust to that. And uh, that so I think that's uh, the way they handled that. I mean, I don't remember there ever being issues there. Neither guy was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm transferring because the coach who I committed to is no longer here. Uh, so I think that can only help them. Um, again, I, I just – I just feel that both of these guys are, are pretty prepared. I mean, playing at Florida, you're going to get a lot of attention playing the SEC more than maybe some other schools. So I just don't see some of the uh, the concerns maybe off the field being a factor with these guys. I mean, at least they weren't here at Florida uh, while they were here at Florida. I think the coaches, I mean, LaMichael was one of the favorites uh, on the team uh, because he was he was in a key role, uh, offensive skill position. I mean, they relied heavily on him, the offense. Um, and he was kind of their, their veteran back the last couple of years and, you know, had productive seasons. Uh, going into this year, there was a lot of talk maybe he could be a 1,000-yard rusher. That didn't work out. After Felipe Franks got hurt and Kyle Trask took over, they really became more of a passing-oriented team. Uh, and, you know, there was a lot of 
storylines in the media how LaMichael was dealing with that. But, you know, he, he always handled it pretty well and uh, was still productive. And obviously, he ended his career in the Orange Bowl by winning MVP with his best game of the season. So you're not going to hear anything from his coaches down here uh, bad about P. Ryan. And the same with the nigga, although the, the senior year, as I said earlier, didn't go the way anyone, you know, really expected. And certainly not the way he wanted it to. Uh, I think the coaches understand that, you know, he he just got dealt a bad, bad hand with that injury. And uh, those injuries are that the high ankle sprains are hard to overcome. John Grenard, one of his teammates, had one too in the middle of the year, not as severe, and was able to come back a little bit before and be productive than Jabari did. So, but uh, their coaches down here, I mean, they, they, uh, they left the program uh, on very good standing. Scott, while I have you, I want to ask you a little bit about Quincy Wilson. George Bremer will be on the show to talk about Quincy Wilson's time in Indianapolis, but I want to know what your memories were of covering him down in Florida. It's funny because the Jets were rumored to be interested in him in the second round. Instead, they went with his teammate Marcus May. I would say that it turned out pretty well because May has been really good when healthy. He's been one of their better second-round picks in the last decade or so. Meanwhile, Quincy Wilson kind of floundered in Indianapolis, but now he comes here and rejoins Marcus May in the secondary. What should Jets fans expect from him, and what do you remember from your time covering him at Florida? So Quincy came in, and he was a guy that, you know, his um, he's kind of overshadowed a little bit at the start because he came in in the same class as a, a guy, Keith Tabor, who uh, was a little bit more of a, a prospect coming out of high school. Uh, so Quincy, I think, got overshadowed. But early on, it was clear that, you know, Quincy not only could match Tabor and skill, I, I think in time it, he was a more productive player. Uh, he was one of the hardest hitters, uh, a good cover corner, but very physical. I mean, that's what I remember about him. And had good size. And uh, obviously his brother uh, is still at Florida. That was a big storyline around around his time at Florida. Um, but as a player, I mean, I see, I, can't, I don't have it right in front of me as bio, but I know he had a, a pick six in a game that uh, made a difference at one point. But I just remember consistency. He was a guy that played as a true freshman, uh, which, you know, Florida, it, it's, it's hard to be, it's hard to shine sometimes as a true freshman. But he got on the field regularly as a true freshman. And by his sophomore uh, season, he was one of the, the guys you knew on that defense who anchored it on the back end with him. And like I said, Tabor, Marcus May was here still. And uh, he was a very good player at Florida. Um, then he goes into his last year and, you know, you had those things, okay, is he going to leave or stay? And he decided to leave after his junior year and, you know, it worked out well. He was a second round pick. And I have, I don't, I haven't followed it closely what happened in Indianapolis. So I'm glad you're having someone else to cover that <laughs> part of it. But I, I, you know, I, I, think he can hopefully resurrect his career uh, there with the Jets because I know he probably wasn't as productive as he was hoping uh, to be in Indianapolis. Scott, what do you think overall? Should Jets fans be excited about the addition of these three guys? I think, I mean, I think they're all good players. Are they going to be guys who – it all goes back to New York. It is a different place like you, you've talked about, Scott. Are they going to be superstars? I, I can't say that, but I think all three – can be really good NFL players. Uh, of all, all those three of those guys, I mean, I still think the the biggest mystery may be Zaniga uh, because of how his senior year went at Florida. But 
I remember on draft night, I saw, I think he either said it uh, or tweeted or something where he, he wants to be the still of this draft. And, you know, there, there's, if he can get up there and get healthy and, and really uh, continue to flash some of that potential we saw at Florida, he could be one of those guys in two or three years where, you know, people might be saying, hey, he was a steal as a third-round pick. So you never know, Scott. I mean, it, the NFL, it's like they have to do it all over again because it's like when they got, you know, left high school and came here, uh, they're basically low man on the totem pole. And guess what? They're right back there now with the Jets. Uh, but I do think that all three of those guys uh, have uh, have skill sets that, that they can play in the NFL. They can be good players. Um, now it's just a matter of uh, them taking advantage of this opportunity because it's a unique situation to have five guys who all – I mean, all five of those guys on the Jets roster, I think, were on the Florida roster at one time together. So that's kind of unique in this day and age. He is a senior writer for FloridaGators.com, Mr. Scott Carter. Thanks so much for coming on and letting us know a little bit of background on the two guys that the Jets picked up from Florida in the draft and also Quincy Wilson, who comes in from the Indianapolis Colts. As I told you before, I know that you've been to New York before, so you know some of the pizza spots, but next time you're up here, you got my number, shoot me a text. I'll take you for some really outrageously good pizza. Well, hey, man, that, that's worth coming on here for, then, because I'm going to hit you up for that suggestion. <laughs> but thanks for thanks for having me on, Scott. Enjoyed it. And obviously, we'll be uh, be paying close attention to the Jets. And, uh, you know, one of the one thing, those Gators up there, they won't be able to eat a lot of pizza right away because they're going to have to get in shape. <laughs> While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hooping with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hooping with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Play like a jet. Play like a jet. The Jets acquired Quincy Wilson by trading the number 211 pick. That is the pick that they got for Darren Lee from the Chiefs, the last pick in the sixth round. They sent it to the Colts. And the interesting thing about that is the pick was originally supposed to go to the Colts already. It was conditional in the trade for Nate Hairston that happened last year. But the conditions weren't met, so the pick went back to the Jets, and then the pick ended up going back to the Colts in this trade. So they played a little hopscotch with this pick. But I wanted to learn a little bit more about Quincy Wilson. So, of course, when we talk about somebody from the Colts, you know that means only one thing. My buddy George Bremer from CNHI Sports and the Herald Bulletin in Anderson, Indiana, is coming on the show to talk all about Quincy Wilson. George If nothing else, I love the fact that these deals with the Colts give me an excuse to talk to you. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Yeah, exactly. It's an annual tradition now uh, (laughs) to come on after the draft and and talk about this deal. And I'd say this was probably the least surprising move uh, that we've seen from Chris Ballard in four years here. People not only thought Quissy Wilson would get traded during the draft, uh, there were a lot of people saying it would be to the Jets for a sixth-round pick. So uh, I, I think it was telegraphed from the get-go uh and I, I think it's it's to me it made a lot of sense for both teams yeah for sure I think this is a situation where you're looking at a jet secondary that has a lot of question marks but more maybes than ugh. so last year the entire secondary or at least the cornerback room was really bad until finally Bless Austin popped up at the end of the season because Tremaine Johnson was just abysmal and he was stealing money. Darrell Roberts was awful. And so you go down the line of all these quarterbacks. Arthur Millette was okay for a little bit, but they had nobody that you looked at and said, this guy's got some promise until finally Bless Austin came off of IR. Well, now you go into the season and you've got some more promising guys. I should say Nate Harrison was here last year. He did okay at first and then fell out of favor, but maybe he works his butt off to try and reclaim a spot this year. And that's the interesting thing about this, George, is that there are now four former Colts defensive backs on this roster, at least at the present moment. You and I were joking about this before because the Jets had gotten Matthias Fairley off of waivers last year. They had that conditional pick where they brought in Nate Hairston. They also went out and they got Pierre Desir as a free agent after the Colts released him. And now they make this deal for Quincy Wilson. So all these guys are back together again. But tell me a little bit about how Quincy Wilson fits here because the way it seemed to me is in Indianapolis, he just never got it to click. He would get opportunities, and every now and again, he was productive. In fact, at the end of that 2017 season, I think he was pretty good for the last month or so. Both him and Hairston, who started together, and now find themselves back together on the Jets. But then he just sort of fell out of favor, and you were telling me before we started talking on the air that he fell out of favor with two different coaching staffs, but we know he's got talent. This is a kid who was picked in the second round out of Florida. So tell me about what went wrong here with Quincy Wilson. Why did Chris Ballard finally decide to pull the plug? 
Yeah, he's been an enigma, really, his whole time here because I think people had high hopes, obviously, uh, coming in as a second-round pick, and, and he's a big kid. You know, I think that's one of the things that they liked about him right away. He's 6'1", 6'2", somewhere in that neighborhood, long-arm, athletic. You know, he, he fits the prototype of, of the guys that Chris Ballard wants back there in secondary. Uh, but it never, like you said, it never really clicked here. He was never really able to put it all together for whatever reason. I think one of the biggest things, and Ballard was very open about this, uh, after after Wilson's rookie year and again after 2018 when he really kind of had a, a spike and, and it looked like maybe he had turned a corner and, and was ready to start reaching his potential, Quincy Wilson was 20 years old when he was drafted, which is just incredibly young, as you're well aware. And Ballard said he felt like he failed him a little bit, that he was not – he did not have enough structure ready. He was not prepared enough to give him the resources he needed as a 20-year-old to adjust to the NFL. And I think it's one of those things where uh, maybe he just fell behind at that point uh, and just never was able to, to kind of catch up. But at that point, he was in a 3-4 scheme playing under Chuck Pagano. Uh, and it it took him a long time to get going. He came in overweight uh, during the, the spring. They, they really were upset about that, wanted to see him get in better shape. took him a while to get that down, get to the point where he could get on the field. Uh, towards the end of the year, the defense coordinator was very open and saying he just wasn't meeting the standards that they wanted to see in practice, and he came out. In 2018, with a new staff with Frank Reich, a new defense and a 4-3 scheme, slow start again. And then the Colts signed Mike Mitchell, and that was really the turning point for Quincy Wilson here. Mike Mitchell kind of took him under his wing, became a really important mentor to him. And that season, Quincy Wilson really finished strong. And at that point, it looked like he was on the come and that, that you know, they were starting to get the guy that, that they had drafted. And then this year, there were high expectations coming in at training camp. Uh, the thought that he was going to go out there and, and compete with Rocky Sin, you know, possibly they would unseat Pierre Desir and have a young cornerback group uh, as the starters. And it just never happened. It never came together. He had a pretty good game against Kansas City, uh, but they moved him all over the secondary. I don't think that helped him. It didn't do him any favors. He played safety at times. He played all the cornerback spots inside and out. Uh, never really settled in at one spot. Uh, but, yeah, it, this was a kid that, for whatever reason, two different coaching staffs eventually gave up on him or at least got disillusioned with him. Uh, it, it was a really long process for him. Twice he got passed on a depth chart by lower-drafted guys. Harrison, of course, when they were both rookies, uh, ended up starting first and, and kind of moving ahead of him on a depth chart. And then last year, Marvell Tell, uh, converted safety from USC passed him on the uh, on the depth chart as well. So, you know, I don't know if it was a maturity issue. Some of it, I think, definitely was. But I, I when I say that, I think people tend to their first reaction to that is he's a locker room problem, and that's not the case. This kid was always good with the media. His teammates love him. Uh, you know, he wasn't a problem. He just, for whatever reason, could not get it all together, and put it on the field on Sunday. So was this just a square peg, round hole kind of thing where he just never fit somehow? Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, I don't think any young kid has helped when they're moving around as much as he was at times. Uh, you know, obviously, you can go in and, and, and give him a streamlined role and say, 
this is what you need to do. I think that would have helped a lot. He was moving. He was slot at times. He was on the outside at times. Like I said, he was a safety at times. Uh, I don't think that did him any favors. And there was, you know, there's a thought. Rick Venturi, former defense coordinator, longtime coach in the NFL, he's, he's here as a radio guy. He's been here the last few years. Of all the picks that Ballard had over his four years here, Coach Venturi always felt like Quincy Wilson was the one that, that didn't fit the most and a lot of that had to do with the speed you know he felt like he wasn't fast enough to play the way the Colts want to play and I think part of that too you have to remember he was drafted for a 3-4 defense uh, when he came in Chuck Pagano was the head coach and they were playing a 3-4 and when they switched to the 4-3 it's, it's a totally different it's not just the, the alignment it's a totally different mindset it's all about speed on that team right now they want you know really fast athletic playmakers and and uh, Wilson's going to be best in, in kind of a press man role, you know, getting up and getting physical with the guys at the line of scrimmage. It's not really what the Colts have done that often. Uh, they did it in the Kansas City game, and, and you saw him have one of his better games. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're more of a, a finesse defense, laying off, let the guy catch the ball, you know, short completions, come up, make a tackle, and then you hope that, that the team makes a mistake somewhere on the way down the field. And it, it just wasn't really Wilson's style. So I think that – I think that played a role in his downfall as well here. What do you think he needs to do to be successful with the Jets? You saw some flashes. You saw him at his best. You saw him at his worst. You saw what might make him a good player here with the Jets if everything were to click. What do you think has to happen? I I thought Chuck Logano was a player's coach to a fault at times where he was very – He's very supportive. I always felt like he would fit as a good college coach because he wanted to kind of build everybody up, inspire, you know, go get them kind of a guy, rah-rah. And it wears off in about four years, but you'd have a whole new class anyway coming in. I thought he would fit perfectly there. Uh, but I, I don't think he was the kind of guy that would light a fire under Quincy Wilson or, or necessarily anybody else. And I'm not sure Matt Eberflus is either. Eberflus has very high expectations. I mean, players talk all the time about loafs, you know, that they go through film at the end of every – practice and game and if you didn't run to the ball full out not jog not 75 percent if you didn't run to the ball full out no matter where you were you know, you could be the nose tackle on an 80 yard pass and if you didn't sprint towards that ball it's a loaf and so they're graded very harshly and, and you know they they talk about how much there's there's criticism in that film room but i don't think he's the kind of guy that's going to kick you in the rear end and, you know, wake you up in the morning. I, I just don't think that's his guy. So I wonder if there's not an element where Greg Williams will be good for Quincy Wilson in that regard. I wonder if he's a guy that kind of needs that, that kick in the seat of the pants from time to time. You know, I don't know if he's ever had a time where he could say that, that somebody had 100% belief in him. I don't know if there's ever been a point. He's had opportunities. I don't want to make it sound like that's the case. But I don't know if he's ever been in a situation where somebody said, this is your job go and take it, and he was the guy. And I don't know that that's going to happen for him in New York for sure either, uh, but I think that that would be something it would be interesting to see. I, I think he's always been looking over his shoulder. He's always had, you know, he's always been waiting for that hook to get pulled. And I, and I think that was one of the big things. I think as a rookie, his confidence got shook. You know, he came in, as I said, a little bit out of out of shape. Uh, coaching staff really was, was riding him pretty hard. And I think when he struggled early – it, it was not what he expected, and I think that it shook his confidence. And I think when Mitchell came in and said, look, man, you've got everything you need. 
you have the talent. You just have to have the mindset. It, it really turned him around. So I think if he had, if he can get that feeling, I, I don't know if he ever felt like the Colts were 100% behind him. He had those opportunities. He was competing. But I think it was a situation where he always felt like he was on a short leash and, you know, at any moment he was going to get yanked out of the lineup. I think if he, if, if he feels like the Jets have his back a little more, I think that could help him develop. Do you think worst case scenario, he's at least some decent depth? Because we know that Hairston was here and he gave the Jets a good game or two and then sort of fell out of favor. And Desir is here as well. So you have to assume that he's going to be one of the starters. Do you think that if he doesn't win one of those starting jobs, he can at least provide some depth behind the starters and some insurance and perhaps even come in in some three cornerback sets? Yeah, you know, again, he does have versatility. That's the one good thing that happened to him. He moved all around. So he's played just about anywhere you can play in the defensive secondary. So I don't think any of that's going to be foreign to him. And I think that'll help him. You know, if a guy gets hurt, he can pretty much go in and, and fill whatever role it is. Um, and certainly, you know, in, in three corner sets and in some sub packages and things, I think he'll have a role. One of the problems that he faced here and that I'm sure he'll face in New York as well, is that he, he's never, for whatever reason, he's never been a special teams guy. They really haven't been able to use him, uh, you know, as a gunner, use him at all on, on kick return, punt return, that sort of thing. And as you well know, your, your depth corners, that's kind of what they're there for. You know, that, that's a big part of the job. And that's why he went so long periods where he would be inactive here because they would, they would put a guy – who was maybe not as good on defense as Quincy Wilson, he would be active on game day because he could go out and make an impact on special teams. George is somebody who got to watch Desir start a bunch of games and who got to watch Quincy Wilson and even Nate Hairston. I want to ask what you think ultimately the Jets should expect from those three in 2020. Now, first of all, Pierre Desir is one of my favorite people in the NFL, and I think you guys are going to fall in love with him very quickly. He's He was the Walter Payton Man of the Year award winner here last year. Uh, he's constantly involved in the community, constantly uh, you know, trying to help out anyone he can in, in any way he can, has a really unique perspective, uh, really had to work his butt off just to get a spot in the NFL, and, and he appreciates that. You know, It's never lost on him what a privilege it is to, to have the role that he has. And when he's healthy, he was a really good corner. The, the job that he did in 2018 during the playoff run on DeAndre Hopkins in two big games, both of them on the road in Houston, uh, if you can find that tape, it's, it's unbelievable what Pierre Desir was able to do uh, against, you know, arguably the best receiver in the league. Obviously, Bill O'Brien doesn't agree with that, but I, I think the rest of the, of the NFL certainly puts him up there. Uh, and those were huge games. The regular season game was basically an elimination game for the Colts at that point, and then the wild card playoff game. And I want to say somewhere in a neighborhood of maybe five or six catches total combined for uh, Hopkins in that stretch, and, and something like 60 or 70 yards. It, it's a number you would not – it jumps off the, the, the sheet at you. And that's, that's what Desir is capable of at his best. Uh, when he's healthy and when he's able to, to play his game, that was never the case for Desir last year. He got that hamstring injury. It, it really never cleared up. He was playing with it throughout most of the season. And, and that's you know, kind of what sent him out here. Uh, it would be interesting to see if he can regain that. But if he can, he's a really good pickup. 
I think Harrison's a guy you saw last year. At least that's that's what he was here in Indianapolis. There were flashes. Uh, there's times where you really feel like there's something there, and and he could maybe help this football team, and then you know he'll disappear for a little while. So it sounds like that's kind of the same thing he did in New York last year as well. Uh, I think that's kind of who he is at this point. And and Wilson's a kid again, great length, great physicality, had a great career at Florida. It's all there on paper. Uh, I, I know a few years ago the Colts had a situation with Jerry Hughes uh, drafted by Bill Polian here and, and sitting behind a couple guys in, in Dwight Freeney and Robert Mathis where really his best role was, was going to be in some sub packages from time to time and, and on special teams, and he never liked that. He never really wanted to be here. He was looking to get out of India at every turn, and when he finally did, he went to Buffalo and became a pro bowler. So – I'm not saying that's in Quincy Wilson's future, but it's happened before. It's all there for Quincy Wilson to succeed. It's just a matter of when that light bulb is going to go off and he's able to put it together on Sunday. And this year, obviously, another example because the Colts got him off of waivers and he came in and defied expectations. He was somebody that had been a fourth-round pick and there were things expected of him. He never lived up to them, came to the Colts, and finally started to live up to expectations. So you never know. And I think for the number 211 pick in the draft, it's a worthwhile swing for the Jets. And now plenty of Colts in here competing for jobs on this roster. We'll see which ones ultimately end up sticking and whether Quincy Wilson is one of them. George, thanks so much for coming on, as always, and enlightening us on Quincy Wilson. I'm sure that we are going to talk plenty of times because it seems like the Jets and Colts are mandated by the league to make at least one trade per year. So we'll have a trade like this at some point next year as well. In the meantime, for anybody that wants to check out your work or interact with you on social media, how can they do that? Yeah, I'm at GM Bremer on uh, Twitter, and uh, all my stuff is at HaroldBolton.com backslash Colt. Uh, you know, it's, it's been funny because it's, what, three straight years now with the draft day trade, Henry Anderson and Hassan Ridgeway, and, and now Quincy Wilson. So I guess if nothing else, we can kind of circle next April for, for whatever deal is going to go down between the Jets and the Colts. Go ahead and follow George on Twitter at GM Bremer. Read his work at CNHI Sports and in the Herald Bulletin. If you haven't given us a five-star review on iTunes yet, if you could go ahead and do that for us, we'd really appreciate it. Easy way to help out the show if you like what we're doing. It doesn't take you much time, doesn't cost you any money, but it goes a long way to help us out. So if you could do that for us, we would be quite grateful. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcasts, you know where to go. That's Turn on the Jets Digital and turnonthejets.com.